Hello, and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key Kunst. Let's talk about culpability and accountability and why it is essential to impeach Donald J. Trump and try him in the Senate, even though he will surely be out of office before a verdict is reached. Let's start with some basic points. Donald Trump, the president of the United States, engineered a myth that the 2020 presidential election had been stolen from him. The classic big lie of fascists. He used the power of his office, our office actually, in attempts to intimidate public officials into supporting this myth. These, inf- these officials included legislative leaders who he summoned from Michigan to the White House, the United States attorney in Atlanta, whom he fired, and of course, the Secretary of State in Georgia, whom he asked to, quote, find enough votes to reverse Joe Biden's victory. None of this worked. So the president mobilized his followers to rally near the White House on January 6th, the day Congress would tabulate the electoral votes and certify Joe Biden's victory. At that rally, he told the crowd to march on the Capitol and fight for their country. And you know what happened then. Four of the marauders and a police officer died in the violence at and inside the Capitol. In a disaster as bad as this, the first question is whether the person at the top, the commander, the corporate CEO, the president of the United States broke the law. That is a good question here, but the answer is a maybe. And on one of the most important legal questions we as progressives may not even want Trump to be found guilty of, although it sure requires some long-range vision to stick to that. Trump created this mob and sent them to the Capitol. The phrase inciting a riot has been used widely, but could he actually be convicted of that? Here is the dilemma. The Supreme Court has created a very stringent test for declaring that political speech is a crime. Did Donald Trump cross that line? Legal experts say it will be a very tough case to make. And as, a, as progressives here, uh, this is our dilemma. We want political speech to be as free as possible. Convicting Trump of inciting the mob would further our short-run fury, but at the very least risk of narrowing the definition of political free speech, free political speech. That could come back eventually to haunt us, and, and we see that debate. There is a better solution, though. After the Civil War, the Constitution was amended to say that anyone who had taken the oath of office to, quote, support the Constitution of the United States, end quote, and then in violation of that oath, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, was barred from holding office again. This was written to keep the rebel Southerners from returning to power. But it certainly applies here to Donald Trump. He worked for months to undermine an American election, which is a pretty solid case study of sedition for the modern age, using the tools of democracy to destroy it from the inside. The impeachment resolution the House plans to take up tomorrow morning specifically cites the language I just quoted from the 14th Amendment, which was adopted in 1868. Here's the point. It would be harder to convict Trump or any other citizen under the Supreme Court's rule on political speech. Very hard, stringent. But it is a no-brainer to charge Donald Trump for violating his oath of office by a series of actions and speech that resulted in a mob ransacking the Capitol and bludgeoning people to death. Five people. He didn't just violate his oath. He trashed it, and we all know it. Republicans know it. 
The most important penalty of being impeached and convicted is not losing a few days in office, but losing the right to ever hold office again, especially since he's not term limited. So it really doesn't matter whether the Senate reaches a verdict before Trump leaves office. Now, it won't be easy to convict him. It will require 17 Republicans to vote with 50 Democrats now elected to the Senate. But that vote is the second reason to impeach him. We need to have this vote. There are plenty of issues on which we can hold different points of view and still be part of one community of Americans. But this is not one of those issues. It is unacceptable for any American president or any senator or member of Congress to engage in a plot to overthrow an American election, literally by storming Congress and threatening, inciting folks who threatened to kill the vice president to get it done. We need to draw that line and the Republican party needs to decide which side it is on. The Republicans love to paint the left as un-American. Well, the sacking of the Capitol to disrupt the electoral vote count is as un-American as it gets, undemocratic as it gets. It is a pathetic, the pathetic the way some Republicans are arguing that impeachment will divide the country we are divided. What have we not been divided? We just had mobs storm the Capitol. If you don't think this is division, you, you're worried about more division or are you worried about getting reelected with the Trump base, that crazy Trump base? The only way to reunite us is to be clear on what we believe and hold accountable those who violate that consensus, starting with Donald Trump. Now, Nancy Pelosi has given Vice President Pence until tomorrow morning to implement another constitutional amendment, the 25th, to relieve Trump of office and take over as acting president until Joe Biden is sworn in next week, just next week. That would get Trump's finger off the nuclear button, which since his Twitter account was taken away is probably the scariest tech he still has control over. We need to control his impulses. So it is hard to be against removing Trump, but impeaching him and bringing him to trial is far better than removing him under the 25th Amendment. The problem isn't that Donald Trump was unfit from day one to be president. The problem is that an entire political party enabled him in undermining our democratic norms, ripping apart institutions that are there to protect the democratic norms and whatever good rights we have. A Senate vote on Trump's guilt will force Republicans to face their own culpability. That is what is key. We have a great show for you today. Stick around. We'll be right back. We're going to talk a little bit about money laundering, money laundering. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Nomi Key Show. So, uh, <laughs> As much as uh, the news has been crazy, there are other key issues that we have to be dealing with, obviously, as we go into the Biden administration. Um, our next guest is, our first guest, I should say, is a former candidate for Congress in New Jersey's 8th District. Uh, he is a an anti-money laundering specialist, which just brings up a whole slew of issues, even related to Trump, uh, which I think that post- office, especially if we go through this uh, impeachment form, we're going to be exploring just how uh, the office of the presidency was used to benefit him and his family, and of course, um, any sort of cronies. Hector Asaguera is uh, here to join us today. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you for having me on. It's a real pleasure. So, you know, you, you ran for office recently. Um, this is, uh, it, was, it was a very crazy year to run for office. Let's just start off with what inspired you to run uh, for Congress, given your background. I mean, really what inspired me to run is that I live in one of the bluest districts and one of the bluest states in the country. And so for a long time, I was your regular Democratic voter thinking that, you know, even if Congress is messed up, at least I'm doing my part in sending the right people to Congress. Uh, 2016 comes, you know, I was always sort of interested in politics, but never saw myself as a participant in politics. And 2016 obviously happens and the world is sort of a very different place. So I start to reexamine what are the decisions that I made that may have led here? What, what's sort of going on here at home that may need my attention? And, you know, I come to find out a lot of the elected officials that are being elected in Hudson County, New Jersey, are essentially Republicans with a blue D next to their name. And I started sort of saying, if nobody is going to step up to challenge these people and to challenge the narrative that they're selling to my friends and neighbors, I, I can be someone who can do that. And uh, given that nobody primaried my opponent in 2018, I thought that it would be a real shame if 2020 were to go by and the progressive movement didn't have a chance to speak on what's going on here in this district, which encompasses many very important cities in the nation, Jersey City, Newark, and Elizabeth, New Jersey, just being three of them. And I felt that we deserved better. So that's what inspired me to get involved. Your backgrounds in in, um, in assessing, and I mean, you're a lawyer, you anti-money laundering, um, which is extremely complicated. I mean, following the money often is how you get to the root of corruption, but money laundering is like on a whole other level, um, being able to assess how money moves. And especially with, with the current state of technology, whether it's a cryptocurrency or other forms, um, it's it's very hard to crack down on corruption. But I, I, I want to start off with just something that's that's in the news right now. Uh, the Treasury Department has this list you mentioned called uh, the 314B. And how does, I'm curious how that relates to the insurrectionist uh, events of last, last week. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. So um, as part of the Patriot Act, which I'm sure your, your viewers will recognize, there was this law put into place which is uh, 314B, which you mentioned. It's a list that the Treasury Department sends out to every bank in the United States, which essentially means in the world. And it's a list of people. And if you are banking with these people, you have to stop. And then you have to report to the government how much money they have in your banks and what they've been doing with that money. Uh, I remember after a certain, so these lists are confidential. You're not a lot for obvious yeah. reasons. You're not allowed to know who's on it and who's not on it. But I can tell you that after certain prominent terrorist attacks, uh, when I was working at certain financial institutions, we would get these lists and I would recognize the names on the lists. And so- They were I, famous names or- <laughs> Essentially, they were names that you'd see in the news as terrorists or individuals who had carried right. out certain attacks. Um, I'm sure you'll remember the Pulse nightclub, the Las yep. Vegas attack, all these incidents, and the government would want to know where these people had used the money that purchased the weapons to commit these attacks, um, is one way of thinking about it. And so I would not be surprised if uh, one of the future lists has names that will never be published in the media and people won't know about, but were people who the government knows were participating in the insurrections because um, 
these lists come out for terrorism very regularly, and I could easily see the attack on the Capitol being seen as a terrorist attack and the government wanting to know who funded these attacks. I mean, it already seems like it's going in that direction. I mean, you've um, people are concerned that, rightfully so, that by deeming this a terrorist attack, it's going to give the government uh, the, 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 I guess, the, the political will, maybe that's it, uh, to expand on their already extremely, like the Patriot Act's overextension of power and uh, monitoring folks and surveillance. Um, I don't know how much more you could survey people at this point <laughs> without yeah. without going uh, towards the Chinese government, which has ex- expanded their surveillance uh, to to whole other levels in the last uh, few years. But I'm, I'm I'm curious, like this makes sense to me. You know, understanding where the money is flowing from, how folks are able to get you know weaponry. Although it seems like a lot of these folks have were individuals who may have. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm just making an assessment from my observations, but they may just be folks who like collect guns and could very well do it legally, by the way. Um, so, I mean, like at, at what point, at what point is this just uh, prying into people's, I mean, where are you gonna get anything from? I mean, how, uh, it, it's not like there's a terrorist cell. We know where right-wing extremism comes from. It's not like it's from some overseas group that, is trying to funnel money into other groups and you know the way that it traditionally works when you when you look at these cases. Indeed. These are just like gun enthusiasts who are totally nuts and reading extremist uh, just just organizing in their QAnon forums. Indeed, but uh, I would push back and say, uh, what's the difference between people on those forums and people who are radicalized by extremists um, for any cause and are told to, you know, go out and commit acts of violence in furtherance of this cause? This could be very easily seen to mirror that. The only advantage I would say is like you said, these these guys are not uh, top, the te- they did not send their best terrorists, as you might say. And um, these people- Oh, you mean be- the paint didn't didn't give that away? The, the yeah. fur hats and the paint and stealing and putting a, uh, the podium on eBay didn't give that away? <laughs> Indeed. So so it might not be as difficult as it might normally be to, to crack down on the terror cells because these guys were not the most sophisticated of terrorist actors. Um, and, and you're right. Look, the, I always push back against the government wanting any more authority because from the inside, as somebody who does this, trust me, they have plenty of authority as it is. So um, any push to uh, create new laws that extend the, the surveillance state, I would be completely against and incredibly skeptical of because I can guarantee you they have enough already to track down a significant portion of the people who were there and the ones who planned it. And they already have. I mean, they're already arresting people, um, holding them right now. And uh, and, and obviously the platforms are, are either being shut down or, or being taken off of servers, et cetera. Um, I think what's so frustrating to so many Americans is just that the FBI was fully aware of what was underway. And because I, I, my take is partly because there's there's bias in this country and 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 there's the buffer of the president and maybe folks didn't take it as seriously when they should have. I mean, given the fact that they almost kidnapped the governor of Michigan. I mean, this is that the, the writing was on the wall. There's a video that we did two months ago um, 
someone shared it online. They said, you know, we called it two months ago. And I'm not saying that we called it two months ago, but it was after they tried to seize Governor Whitmer and, you know, armed organic militias, right? These are just like folks organizing on their own with no directive from some sort of, you know, top-down leadership. We knew then, and I watched this video and I was like, oh my God, this is two months ago. And they weren't prepared. So I I guess what's really weird to me is um, if it's happening in this more organic way and you don't, there's not a head to cut off, how does the money tracking really make a difference? I would say that money is the ultimate source of so many of the issues that are plaguing us in so many different political spheres. You know, I love the work that I do and and it's something that I think uh, is something I took to because what that's exactly what I'm doing is I'm trying to find where did this all come from? And in the society where we live in, the source of so many things is money, right? Um, I don't... Um, put away the the idea that there may have been funding from these larger right-wing groups. You know, you could think of so many of them, your your wannabe campus right-wingers, people like Milo in in a new stage, in a new form, people who uh, recognize that putting fascism in a shiny suit um, might be a way of selling it to to, uh, working class, uh, middle of the road, people who think of themselves in that sort of way. So I, I don't uh, discard the idea that there might be uh, well-funded uh, right-wingers behind a lot of what happened and is still happening right now. I mean, they're definitely funding places like Parler. They're definitely funding, uh, I mean, Ben Shapiro said that he and his his campus organization, not Ben Shapiro, uh, uh, the other one, uh, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, they they brought in buses of, of college students, but, you know, of course they didn't go that far. They they pulled them away after the rally and, and didn't storm the Capitol. But there are definitely aspects that are clearly funded, funded and sponsored. Um, and and maybe that's just enough. They know that they can just just tease it out there, and and it'll grow, uh, and doesn't need directives. It's it's folks who you know have been planning for this their entire lives. They they are fearful that the government's going to overstep their their you know their their uh, powers, and and this is our government. And I mean, you heard the rhetoric that they were saying. I mean, these are the people who line up at the border, uh, and and call themselves militiamen. Yeah, I I mean, I would say that there's a strain of American politics that goes back a long, long way that looks like that, that's always looking for a big brother to try to come and take our guns and our Bibles and make us submit to communism, you know, and that goes back so far that uh, we're sort of dealing with the newest iteration of that. It's almost, it's like cosplaying a conspiracy theory where like you said, they don't need too much directive because they'll just make it up as they go along. And then whatever happens confirms what they already think, no matter what happens. And it's such a dangerous, like cultural cesspool that's being created. I, I sometimes do work like I don't get me wrong. I think deep forming fascists is a great thing. But I worry about where they turn to that we might not see what they're doing and they may come right. back in a more dangerous fashion. And we never even saw it coming because they've been pushed into this dark corner. So, so there's such a, a funny way that 
the digital age meshes with that strain in American politics that goes back all the way to the founding. Um, and, you know, I don't have all the answers, but, but I do think that making sure that we're keeping a wrangle on who's funding these operations is definitely one way of making sure that we're getting ahead of whatever may be coming. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think the ultimate goal with deplatforming right now, uh, fascists and people organizing, is that they want to minimize, they want to they wanna band-aid the bleeding, they want to suture the bleeding right now. Um, months down the line, years down the line, there there may very well be a different platform, but I think that's why it's really important that our our law enforcement agencies that do monitor this stuff uh, first off, that they're actually monitoring it and that they're doing something about it because it's not like it was a secret. I mean, how many of these situations, it's come out that the names have been on lists, they've been aware of these folks and they just don't do anything, partly because sometimes the law enforcement sympathizes with it. Not sometimes, many oftentimes. And are part of these groups. And, part of, and, part, and specifically part of these groups. Um, let's pivot real quick because, um, you know, Trump is leaving office no matter what. <laughs> But what he thinks on the 20th and uh, Trump before his, his presidency was no stranger to moving money uh, in many curious ways. And, and there's there are some folks who have arguments that he ran for president to basically protect himself from um, money laundering uh, that he had done potentially done overseas. So I'm very curious, like what is what is real right now? What? Uh, forget about impeachment, but post office, what could potentially be investigated um, that we know for sure, uh, given the last few years of his presidency, that that could be investigated in terms of the money laundering? Yeah, and and thanks for that question because it's a great question. Um, there is a part of the Constitution that we sort of skipped over in law school, and they said, you know, no, this has never been litigated, and nobody would ever be stupid enough to try to do something in contrast to this. So let's just forget about it. <laughs> you know, we're talking about the emoluments clause, um, a little-known provision that basically said you're not allowed to take foreign money while you're the president. Or I, I think that that will be very heavily litigated at this point because. Uh, Donald Trump exploited the fact that this anti-corruption uh, clause had never been litigated. No court had ever heard a case on this because essentially for 200 years, uh, people had taken for granted that nobody would be stupid enough to do something so corrupt, right? Um, let's talk about real estate, which is the industry from which Donald Trump springs. And let's talk about New York City in particular in the 70s and 80s, which was a hotbed of mafia activity. Um, People know about the construction industry and the concrete industry in New York City uh, was for many, many years run by mafia operators. And no project, they, they often brag that no project could be approved in New York City without the mafia getting a cut of that project. Uh, lo and behold, what industry does Donald Trump come out of is the real estate industry in New York City. Um, the real estate industry is particularly a hotbed of money laundering because a lot of people have high priced assets that people sometimes buy in all cash, right? So who's going to buy a million dollar condo in all cash, right? Obviously somebody who is obviously not in a legit business. Um, those, are, those are not things you see in the normal world. And so 
Donald Trump builds these buildings and many of those apartments are sold to Russian oligarchs, people, the, the world's most unsavory people, because they know that they can park their money in New York City. It's an asset that will appreciate in value. And later on, they can walk away from it. And, and money laundering loves uh, real estate, loves tangible assets because they usually cost so much that people can't really say one way or the other if that's legit. And then who's gonna really account for who gets the money at the end of the day? Um, so boats, planes, real estate, all that sort of stuff, cars, uh, money launders love that stuff because it's just a solid piece of uh, asset that you could sell to anyone for whatever price you really want. And you know, as long as the other person agrees to pay that price, you know, that's why money laundering is this thing that needs, you know, it's not like a robbery or killing that only one one person commits the crime. You sort of need two people to participate in the activity. Some people don't know about it. And that's what people like Donald Trump take advantage of is that so many people could say, well, how would he know where the money came from? But when you're taking all this money from all these shady characters, um, sometimes you know that people are just looking away willingly. Yeah, I mean, I... Um... I ran for public advocate of New York in 2018, and it was a big part of my campaign was taking on real estate developers because uh, the lawmakers in New York City in particular, but really, I mean, this is a, a this is a crisis that's happening in Miami, it's happening in Chicago, it's happening in DC, it's happening in San Francisco, it's happening in London. Uh, it's happening in, in a lot of these major metropolitan, uh, cosmopolitan, excuse me, cities uh, where where folks, can safely park their money instead of putting it in banks, as you say, um, where there are more and more regulations. I mean, the Obama administration really exercised that in terms of cracking down on 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 folks parking their money in overseas Swiss banks, etc. Um, so, I mean, in New York, it became extremely frustrating because. The, the, the cost of real estate is simultaneously going up. So if, and I don't remember, I don't know what the number is now, but uh, I think it was like one out of four pieces of real estate at the time were being sold to foreign oligarchs of some sort. And that undoubtedly has an effect on the market, whether it's the cost of the rent the the tax dollars not going into public services because uh, developers get huge tax breaks or just changing the neighborhood. Because if you have the incentive to build more buildings, these high rise towers, it changes the neighborhood. It makes it so that the, the storefronts, you know, the cost of the small business storefronts, their rents go up. And so you can only afford to have Chase banks and fancy like green juice stores that are, you know, whatever they're doing there. Um, and so it just changes the way that New York has, and, and it's visible, it's obvious, and it's essentially like empty glass towers everywhere with no lights on and working people have been, have been moving. I mean, I remember interviewing some union members uh, that are New Yorkers who said they moved outside of Philadelphia and they commute every day in to New York. They consider themselves New Yorkers because they could no longer afford to live in New York City in any of the five boroughs or a media outlet, you know, whether it's Jersey or Westchester or wherever, or Long Island. So there's a real effect to not cracking down on this, but because the Democratic Party in New York, which is a, you know, it's a single party city for the most part, um, has been in bed with the developers for so long, they're afraid of cutting the, they're so afraid of regulating it, but as a result, the, the city is just crumbling away and, and a shell of what it used to be um, in so many different ways. 
Yeah, and New Jersey mirrors that exactly. We're like the next uh, level of what you see going on. And I, I think, I mean, you really hit the nail on the head uh, with how this works in so many uh, cosmopolitan areas of our country is that people are coming in and they're bringing all this money. The politicians don't really care because they're getting a cut of it too. You know, they uh, get contributions here in New Jersey. It's like so corrupt. I could get into it for hours, but like the, whoever the, the mayor is has a cousin and has a brother and, and they're on the zoning board. And so they get a cut too. And these people are, explicitly doing things that hurt working class people. They're raising rents and people don't know why are the rents going up so high? What's going on? How did this Whole Foods just appear in my neighborhood? Why are all these things happening to my neighborhood? And they don't see any of the benefits of it. There's this class of people that's hidden away. We don't even see them. Half these people don't even live in the places that, they, that they're putting their money. They just put the money there because like you said, it's a safe investment and it's automatically sort of going to appreciate because you have all these people doing it at once. All the money coming in just floods the market and they're appreciating the value of everything. And so it distorts the market and it hurts working class people. We've seen it go on in New York City. Like you said, in Miami, it's huge. In Chicago, it's huge. And we are sort of creating a, a form of in, income inequality that people don't even see and don't know where it comes from unless you're someone like me who's an attorney and like does this stuff for a living. And, and I just think that that's such a scary society that we're coming to. And of course, we need new people getting involved to change how these things work. Uh, just having this conversation reminds me of parts of my campaign. Part of my affordable housing policy was a vacancy tax. If these high-priced condos just sat vacant on the market, you would have to pay a tax equal to or more than the rent that you would charge, incentivizing people to lower rent. So that would have a deflationary effect on the rents that are being paid. And so if, if you see these tools being used against us, we now have to turn these tools against them and, and see what's going on so that we know how to combat what's going on. I mean, this is I, I've, this is a really tough one to talk about because it's it's so popular. And I'm not saying I'm against this. I am saying that there is another avenue which would be extremely beneficial to all aspects of these cities. But I know everyone's talking about in New York the millionaires tax, and I am supportive of the millionaires tax. But if we had had, I mean, if the millionaires leave New York or say that they're no longer, I mean, this is the argument Cuomo makes. And I, I, again, I don't agree with his argument, but this is the argument he's making, which is fine. They won't make it their, their permanent residency. They'll make Florida their permanent residency, which is exactly what Donald Trump did, right? Um, but if you're taxing the real estate, which no one wants to touch in New York, and it's not just that we can't pay for the subway because we're not taxing the real estate. It's that literally people can't afford to live in their neighborhoods anymore. Talk about the Amazon deal. It wasn't so much just about how Amazon doesn't pay taxes. It's that when they were trying to set up that Amazon deal in Queens, right down the street from my house, it was it came with a bunch of high rises that were redeveloped in the neighborhood, brought to you by Democratic lawmakers who rezoned it, controversially rezoned it. And so with those high rises, you know, who were going to buy those apartments? Oh, am high paid Amazon workers who weren't even from New York, who were coming in from all over the country. So it, 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 and it shifted the neighborhood, the money, uh, you know, it's not just that the high rises didn't have to pay taxes. Um, it's, it's, it's obviously Amazon doesn't pay taxes. And then you have the largest public housing in the country in the country, right outside of that, like right in front. And their entire neighborhood shifted 
the cost of living in New York is just, I mean, a cup of coffee. I make the joke all the time that if you want to be a patron to our show, you know, starting at $5, it's basically a cup of coffee in New York. That's not because of the workforce. That's not because of the minimum wage. It's because the rent in New York is so expensive. These coffee shops can't afford to survive if they don't charge $5. Indeed, indeed. And so you you hit so many uh, points there, but I just want to give a real quick shout out to um, Michael and Julianne Watson, two friends of mine who are your patrons and I'm sure are watching right now. And What's uh, up, Michael and Julianne Watson? Thank you. <laughs> they're from Hoboken. And, and this is basically, again, one of the forefronts of exactly what you're talking about, that it's now become unaffordable because all of these inflationary powers are coming in. And they're li- so what you hit upon is, is another thing that rem- brings me back to the campaign, which is tax abatements. So all these, all these politicians are handing away uh, your money, your taxpayer money to kick you out of your neighborhood. T- t- what does that sound like to you, right? And so in Hoboken, in Jersey City, all across Hudson County, we have this very beautiful waterfront that when I was a child was dilapidated, was full of factories, was, was a horrendous place. You, wouldn't, you would not want to get caught out there after eight o'clock at night, right? And what's, what's it like nowadays? Whole foods, high rises, um, luxury spas, right? And so what happened is that the politicians who were in power at the time gave away that real estate to developers. Um, 30-year tax abatements, you know, essentially as long as I've been alive, you've had a tax abatement. For 30 years, you've not had to pay taxes. We've funded this luxury lifestyle for developers. And the politicians love it because if you um, look at these people, a lot of the people who were in power then are in power now. And if you look at their contributors over the years, you will find a lot of very, very familiar names. They will be the very same developers who are kicking you out of your neighborhood. Uh, This is a story that I know plays out in uh, New York City and has been playing out in New Jersey and is something that I've been fighting against. And you know, it's, and and just to make it full circle for folks who are not aware, um, this is how Donald Trump came to be. I mean, in the late 70s, when he was in his late 20s, early 30s, uh, he wanted to have his first real estate deal, but he couldn't get the the Commodore Hotel. He couldn't he couldn't get it. And so he basically lobbied um, the oversight the, the, without getting into the nuance of New York City politics, but he lobbied and he couldn't get it. And so he bullied folks into supporting this deal because there's an oversight there. And as a result, got this abatement for, I think, uh, 40 years or something like that. Um, And it's the Grand Hyatt now. But um, the only reason he was able to do that was because his father, who was a developer in Queens, was a major donor to both the mayor and the governor, who are both Democrats. And that started his little empire. And then, of course, he took it to the waterfront on the west side, uh, on the west side highway in New York, and, and, and put all these uh, apartments up there, um, doing very much what you said, same, same skills. using and, and it became the model in New York City. And you know, we ran on this in the campaign, and we said it over and over again, because um, the public advocate's office sort of as a result of, of the unregulated real estate industry in New York. And uh, it's a shame because, uh, listen, you know, they're, 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 what we've seen in the last few days, a few, few months in New York um, with police presence and all over the country, you know, Democrats are afraid of, of the police unions and they're afraid of real estate. And look what's going on in the city right now. 
people are losing their homes, don't have rent control, don't have, uh, forget about rent control. Uh, they're they're going to be evicted. It's just a moratorium. No one knows how much they're going to owe at the end of the day and, and how that's going to affect the city. And that affects real estate developers too. So you'd think that maybe there would be some sort of alignment in terms of, well, if no one's going to be buying apartments, no one's going to be renting apartments, then, then maybe we maybe Democrats have to come to the table and say, all right, enough, enough on both sides, police unions and, and uh, developers. That is such a beautiful world that you live in. And, and I wish I lived there, too, because in, in New Jersey, <laughs> in New Jersey, I mean, it's it's exactly like you said, it's it's Democrats who are Republicans at heart. Right. And they only think about the financial incentive. That's the only thing they see. They don't care about the lives that are being lost, the people that are being hurt. Um, those are their constituents. And in a place, think about it like this, in a place like New York City, in a place like New Jersey, there aren't two parties. It's a one party state. So the those Democrats turn around and give a huge middle finger to, to people who are working class and just say, I don't have to listen to you because you're going to vote for me regardless. There's no other choice. And so that's why we have this calcified political sort of system that uh, Democrats and Republicans are essentially one and the same in on so many issues. And that's why you really need people on, to, to create a real left movement in the United States that says, you know, we're going to, we should have a contrast on war, on the economy, on the environment between the parties, because we really don't. And if we don't, people are going to just get sicker and sicker of what's going on. And, you know, you never really know what people are going to do, what, you know, uh, there's so many ideas as to what, what happens with the left in the, in the coming years. Um, I, I really see the next few years as an opportunity for the left to, to get its stuff together and, and to form something that is capable of actually fighting the Democratic Party and winning, not, not just putting up this fight. Because, you know, what we're describing is something that's multi-generational. It's been going on for a long time. In, in New Jersey, the powers that be haven't changed since the 70s or 80s. So, uh, and I know it's the same in New York City. Look, it's Cuomo, his father, his, you know, and so we need a new era to truly begin. Well, we also just really need um, to have regulation. I mean, it's it's one thing to swap out. I mean, there are a lot of young people in New York politics, but they're you know still taking the same money. It's the institutions that really need to be held accountable. Uh, Hector, such a fascinating conversation. I'd uh, love to have you on again. We can continue the conversation. Uh, Hector Esaguera, thank you for joining us. And uh, maybe you'll have a lot of work in terms of you know investigating Trump's finances uh, after his election. I after, sure after, hope excuse so. me, the inauguration. Yeah, no, <laughs> I really do hope so. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to speaking again. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, we will be right back after this break. We're going to move really quickly into the panel. Welcome back to the Nomi He Show. I am Nomi Konst. Hey, guys, uh, this is that, that time where I remind you to smash that like button, click subscribe, and join us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show for as low as a very expensive New York City cup of coffee, which starts at $5. That's how much it starts at. Uh, you can also join us for our book club. We just launched this at the new year. Uh, we are reading uh, the one and only Harvey Kay's uh, book on Thomas Paine. Go check it out at the 
at patreon.com slash the Nomi Key Show. We have three types of book clubs, one book a month, two books a month, or four books a month. That's what I'm on. So it's it's been fun so far. I'm reading a lot, <laughs> keeping busy. All right, guys, uh, we have, welcome back to the show. We have Michaela Lacey. She is a reporter, uh, politics reporter at The Intercept. Uh, she has... She was previously, excuse me, The Intercept's inaugural Addie Barkin Reporting Fellow. Uh, and prior to that, uh, she was a politics fellow, fellow in the D.C. Bureau. And then we have Edward Onswego Jr., who is the co-host of This Machine Kills podcast. And he is a staff writer at Motherboard, which is part of Vice Media. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. There's a lot of news going on right now. I just want to start off. Um, let's, let's, let's roll this uh, video of what's going on with congressional members who are who now have tested positive for covid when the attack on capitol hill was going on lawmakers were trapped together waiting it out in small spaces and now two democrats they believe they got covid during that assault one of them congresswoman pramila jayapal she put out a statement saying this Many Republicans still refused to take the bare minimum COVID-19 precaution and simply wear a damn mask in a crowded room during a pandemic, creating a super spreader event on top of a domestic terrorist attack. She also called it, called it, quote, selfish idiocy. What more can you tell us? So, Stephanie, tensions are not only high because of what the insurrection, but also because of the threat of COVID. There are two threats currently on the Capitol. I was just talking to a lawmaker who was in that room, that safe house room this morning, who broke down in tears, saying that they had been trying so hard not to get COVID. Now their entire families have been at risk, that her, their husband, this person's husband, has to go get tested, has pre-existing conditions. There is just a, a tremendous amount of concern and anger about, about January 6th and COVID, especially those lawmakers who were asked to put a mask on for the well-being of everyone in that room, and they refused to do so. I'm just going to start off, uh, Akela, you have covered the Hill. Why can't they be censured for this? Is there, is there any reason why lawmakers who do not abide by Nancy's rules, um, the house rules of, of that, that keep everybody safe can't be expelled from, from the office. Um, I mean, we're seeing like pretty much a lack of, of political will to do something like that, even for, for people who supported the, the lies that led to the attack last week. So I think like, expecting them to center someone for, for not wearing a mask is probably like not even in the, the realm of possibility at this point, but it's a great question. And I mean, it just underscores the, the point that, yeah, there are, there are mechanisms that Democrats could be using to, uh, to enforce, enforce the rules to, to hold their colleagues accountable for some of these things. But I don't, I, I don't bad. expect that we're going to see that we do see, I mean, they, they did just install, install metal detectors outside of the house chamber. Um, and, yeah, and members yeah. are going to have to go through that now before they enter the floor, which is, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like you're, you're, you're not able to trust your colleagues to, to, to help keep you safe, like on, on all of these levels from COVID to, to the attacks last week. Um, and, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't expect them to, to do anything like centering, but it's a, it's a great, it's a great point. Um, and I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, Edward, like if not now, then when, 
I, this is just like the, the daily, the, the, I'm, it's like my mantra on the wall. If not now, then when? <laughs> You're on mute. But. Yeah, that's also a huge problem. You know, like there's just a reluctance to uh, take a step up and hold people accountable, you know, for actions or for, you know, impose some consequences, you know, whether it's for, you know, helping um, urge on, you know, the, uh, or help organize the rally or help, you know, question of legitimacy of the election and, and Trump out claims of, um, you know, certification being a sham or whether it's, you know, not wearing masks in that room. Um, the end now, like, uh, you know, preening for unity and for, uh, you know, foresight to move forward. I mean, this is, reminds me a lot of, you know, I mean, I wasn't like cognizant at the time, but it reminds me of what I've read of like what happened uh, at the time of like Obama uh, taking over after Bush and like there being like really, you know, kind of vicious uh, debate or, you know, pushback against the idea that the Bush administration should be held accountable for egregious war crimes. I mean, similarly here, I mean, they're not war crimes, but, you know, people, you know, are going to get hurt as a result of this and people's lives are, um, you know, security are threatened, but it doesn't seem like anything will happen. I hope not, but it doesn't seem like it, it will. Um, I, I mean, this is, this is like insane if we can't come together. I mean, talk about coming together. If you can't come together for this. So I, I wanna shift um, next to what's happening with big tech. Uh, a new debate has popped up um, surrounding big tech. Uh, Dorsey, can you play that clip from, from Yahoo Finance? I think the fair question is, how did we get here when we have essentially a mob insurrection on our capital and our lawmakers have to use furniture to secure the doors? Uh, and we find that the most meaningful action or what we find the next day is that we're begging 30-something-year-old CEOs of companies to block their accounts. So you sort of have to wonder, how did we get here? So, you know, I'd like to think that this is the beginning and the end of big tech as we know it. I think this is another example that when you have algorithms that are profit driven and these algorithms are indifferent and figure out the tribalism and dividing us is very profitable and it ends up uh, in uh, an overrun or a siege of our capital. I think it's just another data point or another point in the line that moves towards increased scrutiny, increased regulation. But I absolutely think it's coming. And this is just going to put a dot on the exclamation point of, of the fact that something needs to happen here. I mean, this is not a new debate. I think what's really frustrating about this, and I mentioned this at the top, that I, I uh, somebody had reposted a video from two months ago from our show uh, in which you could have listened to it and thought it was from two days ago because we were essentially warning and it, it talking about how folks are being organized on these platforms, they were organizing on these platforms, they were being directed by the president who's inciting hate and violence. And this was around the time when Governor Whitmore, uh, there was Whitmer in, in Michigan, uh, when there was a group of militias, civilian militias organizing to take over the Capitol and hold her hostage, very similar to what, what I think many folks were trying to do on Capitol Hill. And I mean, but that this debate's been going on forever. Uh, since the rise of this monopolistic tech ecosystem, you know, we face it in our own show. If we were angry 
white men over a certain age uh, who were inciting right-wing tendencies. I'm going to guess we might have maybe maybe millions of subscribers. Just going to throw that out there. The algorithm <laughs> supports <laughs> a certain type of, of argument and, and host. Um, it's not an equal platform. So, you know, the conversation around, like, is this censorship? I'm just going to throw it out there and say, no, it's not. First off, if Donald Trump was taking down this stuff, that would absolutely be the classic definition of censorship because it's coming from the state. But even if it's coming from the platforms, it's not like we have an equal playing field. This has been going on for a long time. They shut down left accounts all the time. They don't give uh, uh, folks from, from more nuanced back, you know, th their arguments. They don't get the same opportunities that the others do because – the machine monetizes hate. Kayla. I, yeah, I mean, all of that is is true. And I think not to play devil's advocate, I'm going to annoy myself with this question. But I think the, the question that keeps coming up when when we're talking about increasing these restrictions and finding ways to, to you know, either shut down this kind of um, organizing is, well, they're going to go somewhere else next. And so I think that's the question that keeps coming up. Like, how how much can we litigate this and how much can we actually control this stuff? Uh, and I, I think the, there's no answer to the, the next question that I'm going to ask, but like the the issue is not so much like, oh, well, we need to we need to have a conversation about what what type of speech we're going to allow and what are the limits of free speech, but like maybe actually getting at. Uh, what is the definition of disinformation and like what what is what are the boundary lines that we're going to draw there and we're not really talking about hate speech or like you know we don't we don't agree with your political ideology but that that's really the core of of the issue here we're talking about uh, something that is being organized around a conspiracy theory and and how does i don't know if the internet can control that i think we're probably way too far past past the point for any hope on that but i think that's that's the question and and I mean, people keep talking about, you know, like, oh, we need to get over our political divisions. We need to figure out why people are being polarized so that they are fringing out to these to these to these um, kind of disparate and and, uh, and disaggregated channels. But um, again, when you're talking about meeting someone on the same page, when you're not operating in the same ecosystem of information, um, I think it's only going to continue to get worse when we can when we're, we're I'm not saying I don't think I think Parler should be able to be active. I'm not I'm not saying one way or the other, but there, it's going to pop up in another form or, or, you know, it's not going to just go away. Um, so yeah. Um, Edward probably has more, you, more. You, you, <laughs> I was going to say, you cover this extensively. <laughs> I'm going to guess you have a lot of thoughts, but I'll just throw one out there. Is it the business model? And then just take it wherever you want to go. <laughs> I think that there are like a lot of moving parts here. I mean, on the one hand, you know, the technology has definitely amplified and made it easier to create these ecosystems and these information bubbles and these, you know, environments in which people can end up believing in something that has no bearing in reality or is, you know, in unintelligible to another person. And so you can't pull them out. You can't intervene. You can't deprogram. You can't, um, you know, you know, convince, but also on the other hand, I think like, you know, the, the key thing is the technology is amplifying these things. And, um, you know, I've been like, thinking or trying to hammer out the point that I, you know, I think that, you know, especially in a country like the United States, where there's like a long history of, you know, right-wing violence, a long history of, you know, white supremacists and white nationalists, um, dis, you know, discrediting democracy, either because it, you know, vote is being expanded to black and brown people or indigenous people, or because it's leading to outcomes that they don't like that threaten, you know, um, 
you know, one way or another, because they feel that there's like some sort of, they're like, you know, either part of some revanchionist movement or reactionary trend. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ground in this country for, you know, any sort of tool, artifice or system, technological or not to, uh, you know, amplify, like, I think, uh, long standing trends and tendencies and political traditions uh, to act this way. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, the capital deserves some attention specifically because like, yeah, it was specifically organized on these, on this or that platform uh, with these or that people. Um, but there, but there's also the, um, I think like in the discussions getting lost when we're focusing on, or when, you know, it's been focused on about, you know, Twitter's uh, ban of Donald Trump or parlors, you know, ejection from AWS, like one, these, um, these are moves that are also being done by uh, employees in, in of themselves. And so if we, maybe there's like a future option to look at where, okay, you know, if we are concerned about the power that these platforms have, as we should be, right. But we also want to figure out a way to root out um, toxic politics uh, and, you know, racist rhetoric or racist beliefs that underwrite most of it, we should try to figure out a way to both expand the power of like, you know, workers inside these places and, you know, decentralize um, the ability of investors and executives to work, but also figure out, um, you know, the hard problems of, you know, content moderation or the hard problems of, um, of, you know, why it is that, uh, it, you know, right-wing nonsense gets propagated and amplified on these networks because it gets also built in other places. You know, we have, you know, TV, we have cable, we have radio, we have a whole, whole, a whole ecosystem that is just as important as the tech realm in creating uh, the propaganda and the disinformation. And all of it has to, you know, in one way or another get gutted as well as like the, the central rot. And I don't know, I don't know if we can, you know, I don't know if we can, in all honesty, you know, they all require like such, there are things we have to do at the same time, but I don't know if we have the capacity to do it. And I also don't know if, what playing whack-a-mole in the meantime, you know. I'm glad you bring that up because there's, um, you know, there are a lot of issues here that I, I think that beyond breaking up big tech, but if we were say to break up big tech, um, you still have the same incentive structures, meaning like, the business models will likely be very similar. But there are some things, let's just start off with the fact that um, some of these tech companies are completely aware that there are like troll armies, for instance, boosting right. arguments, whether it's on Twitter or invading mm -hmm. uh, YouTube chats, um, you know, bringing clicks because they're, they're troll armies. And so, so certain, certain communities are boosted um, over others, or you know, they're also used as, as intimidation tactics uh, to people who dissent. And, but the tech companies know this and they know where they're coming from. They also know where, uh, like, like in the case of like super chats, for instance, where the money is coming from when some folks get like floods of super chats. I mean, we, our last guest was talking about money laundering and this is a real conversation that no one seems to be discussing enough is, is the business side of all of this is still very murky and new and, and lawmakers clearly have not caught up to it, but they're gonna have to very soon because <laughs> it deeply personally affected them. So, um, you know, is it as much of, as, as breaking up big tech, but without, you know, taking on monopolies is one aspect of this, but then how do you make sure that these decentralized groups, which might still be speaking in little echo chambers, which is also dangerous, 
don't aren't aren't incentivized by the same business model. Like how how do we address these things? Do you guys have any ideas? And if you do, I'd like you to run for Congress. <laughs> I, I, I'm not, I, I think that one thing is I'm not, you know, I'm not convinced that social media and a lot of the way that the digital economy is operated makes sense. You know, a lot of it is like haphazardly developed. It was like, you know, the result of being well-financed or well-connected and being able to, you know, take advantage of opportunities as they emerge, whether that's collusion with other companies or whether that's, you know, getting funding from uh, one person or another, or whether that's, you know, lobbying and getting a law passed or getting a patron and some politician. Um, and I think that for things that are this important to our lives and how we view the world and see it, they're really, I'm not convinced that it makes sense to just like let competition discover best ways of doing it. Because as you're saying, you know, there's a lot of incentive there, you know, for, um, the development of systems where you can lock, we end up, you know, doing something that's equivalent to locking people in echo chambers or in bubbles of uh, diff differing realities. Um, but then also on the other hand, I think like there is something to be said where, you know, simply democratizing everything is not going to fix, you know, a lot of these problems. Um, a lot of the problem is like, how do you do content moderation? I mean, someone has to look the violent content, someone has to go through, uh, you know, the hate speech, someone has to go through uh, the brigades or the trolls, you know, the, or the child pornography or the, you know, any sort of content that is, that none of us see or, you know, see little of, but someone in a whole fleet of workers see every day and have to. Um, and I feel like we also don't have a good answer on that because part of it is like, you know, we pretend that, or it's pretended to people that technology does that instead of human beings inside of, you know, warehouses or uh, buildings. Right. Um, like the, the, the AI behind mm -hmm. the algorithm is written by people. Right. Uh, and then there are people, <laughs> right. There's AI behind the algorithm. And then there's also like people sitting in these places to make like, the stuff that appears to be seamless AI works seamlessly, right? And I think, you know, until we, I think, you know, one barrier to this is removing all of this stuff from market and from, you know, profitable or profit incentives and then deliberately planning, all right? At what scale we find with people being in certain, you know, groups, networks, communications, I don't think we should just like be able to do any sort of technological thing just because we can, you know, because <laughs> where we are right now is a, is a nightmare, <laughs> you know, because of that. So. Kayla, what do you have? Any thoughts on this? No, I'm, I'm just listening. I, this is like kind of out of, out of my, out of my wheelhouse, but I think I agree with everything that Edward said. And I think it is the, the concept of locking people in echo chambers is really what is interesting to me. And like, I, beyond like the, the technical regulations of this, like, I just wonder if there is a way for, for there to be a meeting of the minds on these things, because I mean, there are obviously people who have a vested in a financial interest in, um, as you, as you mentioned in, in kind of fomenting conspiracy and fomenting, um, qu the question, question marks about, about what is fact and what is truth. But yeah, I, I don't think there is, I don't have an answer on how to like, to streamline that. Yeah. So, so speaking of that, um, the materialization of, or I shouldn't say the manifestation of, of uh, these little echo chambers is folks get involved, they get active, they get attention, and then they run for Congress and then win. <laughs> 
So um, let's play that clip of our favorite con- new congresswoman. She's she has uh, definitely made her appearance on this show before. Let's play the latest from her. I woke oh up that morning with our founding fathers on my mind. Uh, I was thinking back to our founding fathers and how they had signed their name to a document, knowing uh, the the ridicule and and even um, possible. Uh, death would come uh, just by signing their names to these documents. And I thought of myself in that situation. And I prayed that I would have the courage to take a stand for our country, for our freedoms, our liberty, for election integrity. And that day, I signed my name to six documents to stand for our Constitution, to stand for election integrity. I Oh, man. All right. So just a reminder to the audience, this is the same congresswoman who just last week was uh, displaying a video in an ad for how she was entering Congress. <laughs> you know, she she had her she's a gun owner and she uh, was going to you walk around D.C. defending herself from the Capitol building to her office, which also has tunnels underground uh, with a with a gun and also go into Congress with a gun because she has the right to do so, even though you don't in, in D.C. Let's just make that very clear, even if yeah. you are a Congress member. Um, that's that. And then and then just a couple of days later. We, you know, we were just talking about it, like, well, how dangerous could that be? And then a couple of days later, we witnessed it. I'm open up the floor. Anybody wants to join me? <laughs> okay, well, I know you, you've, you've covered Congress. Have you ever seen that kind of crazy? I mean, it's just it's something that I've been thinking about over and over again over the past couple of days is like how we're in a situation where the GOP is conti- like we're conti- we're constantly and Democrats are constantly playing on the GOP's turf and like we're constantly responding to their they're like we're we're never like and i'm not i'm not including myself in this but like like the left and democrats are never in a position where we're setting the agenda and i guess that's a that's a function of the power structure that we've been under for the the last you know like however many years but just the idea that like we can't start from a place where everyone is on the same page that like okay there are certain things that are fact and there are certain things that are not fact. And like, it's like AOC tweeted it today. It's like, like this is not like a difference of political opinion. These are not like people that you should be respecting as leaders and, and, and somehow they get away with, I mean, I guess this is just part of what we were talking about, but like they get away with uh, spouting absolute nonsense in the, in the, in the, under the guise of being, being, being patriotic and being, you know, being strong-willed and and somehow like we're always on the defensive and I think that's what we kind of what we were talking about at the beginning of the show that like and and what we've talked about um, many times Mimiki like that Democrats don't have we don't have they don't have a messaging platform like they don't the left didn't have um they they only came up with like something to give voters you know when we in the last like three days of the of the Georgia special uh Senate election when they were talking, telling people to vote for them if they were going to give them thousand dollar checks, and everything else has always been a response, a reaction, a, a pivoting, a sort of like you know trying to kind of quarterback in response to like the GOP just, just flinging literally anything at the wall to see what sticks. And I don't know, I don't know when or if. I mean, I guess we're seeing some members, and and actually this is a point that I want to make that the most aggressive legislation that we're seeing to tr- to sort of try to combat or or hold accountable anyone who is who is complicit in in last week's attacks is coming from the new members that were just elected Jamal Bowman and Cory right. Bush and Mondaire Jones those are the people that are actually ste- stepping in 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 the footsteps of AOC and and Presley and Ilhan and Rashida Tlaib saying 
oh, wait a minute, like, are, am I psycho or are you guys crazy? Like, like we, like, we're not, not to use like ableist language, I apologize for that, but like, are we like, are, are am I, are we reading the same language? Like, and, and it, it's so refreshing and I don't know, I mean, I think so many people are feeling this, like how, how have we not had someone stick up for this before? But I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't have a coherent point from that, but that's, well, no, that's no, no, what's but that, I mean, that's, on my mind. Yeah. You're making such a strong point. I mean, yeah. Corey Bush, who in the lead up to this was receiving threats already from from the fact that she was profiled in the RNC. Don't forget the convention, the two crazy people with the guns on their lawns, you know, of their McMansion were the ones who decided to target Corey Bush before she was even officially elected and you know as she waited to go into office i mean how do you she's to invest her own own money into security at that point that's before you know she has the protection of, of being a congress member and she within minutes of her being you know sworn into office she presents one of the most just incredibly courageous uh uh pieces of legislation to or is it a legislation or is it a what a resolution it's a resolution me. it's a resolution mm-hmm. um to to take on her colleagues who have really crossed the line. I mean, this is beyond Overton window at this point. This isn't like switching political. No, no, this is this is breaking the law, being disloyal to your government for what? For what? And people enabling it along the way. So, Edward, um, I'm sorry, I just went off on a rant, but I you, you mentioned Corey and I, I Congress member Corey Bush, um, and I felt the same way. I felt exactly the same way. Like this is this is the courage we've been looking for. Have any thoughts, Edward? Yeah, you know, I think. Um... I don't know that uh, Colorado, the Colorado Congresswoman, uh, that video, you know, feels like a dream sequence. And I've, I, I, I just, you know, I think there's also among the Democrats a refusal to, um, you know, have the courage of the convictions that they espouse. You know, uh, the GOP is clearly. I mean, you know, I have my problems with the Democrats, but the GOP is clearly a threat to like the guaranteed uh, survival of a great many of things, whether it's like the ecological niche that we have or it's the political institutions that, um, you know, Democrats cherish, or whether it's, you know, uh, tackling various monopolies that dominate, you know, huge sections of our lives. And the response should not be to consistently cater to them or meet them on these issues. Um, but at the same time, there are also, you know, structural barriers, I guess, to the Democrats actually wielding the power uh, in a way that would hold these groups accountable. And I don't know, I just, um, it is frustrating to watch and have it fall on the shoulders. I feel like it falls on the shoulders of like, the newest, most radical, uh, you know, Congress people who are also have like the largest targets on their backs, um, either amongst the party or on outsiders, or people, you know, in the street that are taking cues or inspiration from the rhetoric of uh, people that oppose them. But I think that you know, it's just a political system that, in one way, is like to, or another, just dominated by cowards, uh, or feels like as if it's you know dominated by cowards who, you know, there's a clear threat. Uh, there's a clear problem, there's a clear um, way to address it. Um, and whenever the clear uh, problems and solutions emerge is uh, refusal to like, you know, really acknowledge them or, or their existence or take them up. And then that just leads us further and further and further into this hell. I mean, so much of this, um, 
I like the day after I just thought to myself, if Democrats hadn't been closing up to big tech for this long, if, you know, we see what's happening with with Prop 22 in California and how they're they're now doing the big campaign in New York and other states. But if tech wasn't so connected to the Democratic Party in terms of funding and appointments and the revolving door between different, I, I don't I mean, would we be in this situation? I mean, big tech, I think so much of the roots of big tech fall their their libertarian roots but the the capitalism that has evolved the 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 this the business model i should say um has created opportunities for democrats to be woven into it and that's just it's like pay to play politics not only are they donating to democrats and republicans of course but they're also bringing actual staffers in who are now back in this administration but like took some time off and went to silicon valley i mean we have to be able to break up with these 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 donors, these these uh, companies that are now giving jobs to our staffers, the Democratic side staffers. I mean, this is this is how corruption works. It's it's legalized corruption, and the results are what we saw. Yeah, you know, part of the problem is technology companies have um, technology companies have for a long time. But- Oh, oh, this is, yeah, this um, yeah, but technology companies for a long time, for decades at this point, have like, you know, had a very um, embedded relationship with, you know, American uh, economy and political system, right? Going back to uh, Cold War and the role in the military industrial complex or the advent of, you know, scientific uh, research out of universities, it's been, they've played a key role in, you know, providing jobs to specific areas of the country uh, in ensuring that uh, surpluses from trade flow back into the country and keep regions that have otherwise been neglected uh, by the state, um, you know, to still have people employed and still have access to, you know, resources. But, you know, the over time, I think that that bargain has, you know, become a Faustian one where these firms now have enough autonomy and sovereignty to, to dictate the terms on which um, they'll operate and engage with or follow or abide by the law. And, um, you know, it's going to require a huge shift, I think, not just in like, you know, the actual laws around these companies, but in the way that the parties or, you know, people in the party see their relationship to them. I think that many still kind of view big tech or technology firms as like, you know, tech when at its best moments, it can help us and can, you know, let us be better than we might otherwise be, can connect us, can, you know, do all these great things when, you know, the reality is if you take a hard look at it, most technology firms, I mean, they provide some good, you know, consumer facing products, but at great cost to everything else, to the ecology, to people in the global South, the children that they use as laborers or miners, to slaves that they use in China or in India, uh, to, you know, contract workers that they use in the United States. Um, Is that worth it? And uh, I think that's also like as big of a pressing question as like, are you fine with allying with firms that will just burn you when they have enough power? That's right. Kayla, do you have any final thoughts? I just think it's funny because you're seeing like all these companies now saying that they're going to stop donating to both Republicans and Democrats. And it's like, (laughs) like at the moment when you wish that the officials would be the ones like dictating the playing rules, like they're just giving them another slap in the face. It's like, actually like, no, like you guys figure out how to play nice. Like we're going to withhold our power and we'll come back when you guys, when you're ready. It's like, I, it's, yeah. 
that's all that I have. It's comical. It's comical. Yeah. We just need more more alphabet unions uh, growing across the country and, and hopefully the world. Uh, super important. Kayla Lacey, Edward Angueso, thank you so much for joining us. It's always so much fun having you on on our Tuesdays. So hope to have you back soon. Thank you, Namiki. All right. I'm going to give the shout outs to everybody. I know we had a little bit of a YouTube issue, but uh, I think for those of you watching, we are going to break this up and put it out on YouTube uh, in clips because I, for some reason, I guess in the middle of the show, uh, we were dropped from YouTube. So thank you to everybody who moved over to Twitch. Thank God we got that Twitch thing down. We, we were just starting to grow on Twitch. So if you are someone who, who hangs out on Twitch, definitely join us on Twitch. Uh, but for those of you who were in the chat on YouTube, including Prairie Fire Kowalski from Nebraska, thank you so much for the love. Pandem Productions, thank you, thank you, thank you. Ryan Chan, uh, let's see who else here. Ooh, it's not moving. I love this when this happens to me. Uh, Art, oh my God. Thank you, wow. What a generous, generous gift. That is going to go a long way. Trust me. We are a scrappy show still. So that makes a huge difference. Thank you, Art. Thank you so much. Thanks to Harvey K, uh, who was in the chat, moved over, to, signed up for Twitch, moved over to Twitch and mixed it up in that chat. And Midi Docs for not just working the algorithms on YouTube, but moving, advising everyone to move over to Twitch. Thank you so much. And to our moderators, Bob, Choken, The Orb, and Chuck Diesel for keeping that chat room uh, troll-free. And, oh, we are going to put the full show up on YouTube. That is what Dorsey is telling me. We're going to put the full show back up on YouTube, and hopefully tomorrow we'll be back at normal. I don't know what happened. It's funny, because earlier today, right before I won the majority report, I turned on the lights and... I blew a, 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 whatever the thing is, the surge, what was it called? I already forgot what it was called. Um, so I had to go out back and I like figure out how to fix everything. A fuse, thank you, Dorsey. I was like, what's the word? I blew a fuse right before I went on. Just real fun. So tech issues all around right now, all around. But thank you to everybody for sticking around, for joining us on Twitch, for staying, staying patient. Uh, the show must go on. That's how we operate here, especially when there's big news in weeks like this. We will see you tomorrow with another great show. Thanks, guys.